I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science with Dr. Ginger Campbell. For the last 10 years, we have explored how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brains make us human. If you want to see our complete episode list and show notes and transcripts, please go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Dot com. You can also send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. So over these 10 years, we've explored the brain from many different perspectives, ranging from the philosophical all the way to the level of the synapses. Today is actually the second part of a look back over these past 10 years. Last month, I focused on the first five years, which covered about 80 episodes. And I tried to focus on a few main ideas. I didn't really try to read the 80 transcripts of those episodes. However, since the last five years only represents about 50 episodes, I did try to look back over these. But I didn't want to duplicate the year-end episodes that I've been doing since 2007. So I took a lot of notes along the way, and I finally decided to focus on one main question. What is mind? This is the question His Holiness the Dalai Lama presented to several pioneers of brain plasticity during his first visit to Alabama in 2014. Excerpts from that event form the basis of episode 113. If you've listened to that episode, you know that none of the scientists tried to answer the question, What is mind? I'm not claiming that I have the ultimate answer, but I'm going to share my perspective based on 10 years of reading and talking to over 80 scientists. Then I'm going to consider how the episodes of the last five years relate to the question. Along the way, I will intersperse some listener feedback and give some advice to newer listeners. Then in my final closing comments, I will include a brief look forward to the coming year. What is mind? I'm going to be reflecting on how my personal understanding of the concept of mind has grown and evolved over the years. Before I start, I want to acknowledge that there is no consensus on a definition for mind, which may be one reason why those respected scientists were reluctant to respond to the Dalai Lama's query. What follows are my reflections on my own personal exploration of this question, although I will admit that for me, the question has rarely been explicit. For me, the driving question has always been, why do I behave the way I do, and why do others behave the way they do? My journey did not begin with the launch of the Brain Science Podcast in 2006. 
In fact, I can't trace its exact beginnings. I think the first time I read about the mind was when I began reading Eastern philosophy in the late 1980s. Ironically, I did have early exposure to psychology as a college student in the 70s, but that course was behaviorist, so mind never appeared. I began my exploration of Eastern thought with the basics of clinical neuroanatomy tucked away somewhere, which is to say that I had a vague notion that the brain created the mind, but this in no way impinged on my intuitive sense that my mind was something non-physical that might even continue after my death. I was not skeptical about anecdotal evidence purporting to demonstrate the non-local properties of mind. Thus, I would say that my concept of mind was pretty typical of a Western-trained physician encountering Eastern philosophy for the first time. So what happens when one reads neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy of mind for over 10 years? For me, the first casualty was my intuitive dualism, that sense that the mind is somehow magically separate from both the body and even the brain. This innate dualism is a natural product of our brain's generation of the mind. Since neither the brain or the mind can observe itself directly, it does the best it can to generate a model based on the limited information it has. Prior to the discovery of the brain, people probably still had a sense that their mind or soul or essence or whatever they called it was behind their eyes because that is the way it feels. Why did I abandon dualism? The more I learned, the less likely it seemed that there was a non-physical element to the mind. If parts of the mind are clearly generated by the brain, it seemed reasonable to conclude that the entire mind was brain-generated. After that, things got more interesting. I learned about ideas like embodiment and extended mind. I was especially fascinated by the embodied cognition movement because it argues that there is more to mind than just the brain, but it still rejects dualism. The mind is embodied because it is created by the brain's interaction with its body and the world around it. Various writers argue that you are not just your brain, and Andy Clark has introduced the idea of the extended mind, In this view, mental props like notebooks might be considered part of the mind. Personally, I'm agnostic about the idea of extended mind, but surprisingly passionate about embodiment. For one thing, this is something that connects us with other species. There is still much debate about what constitutes consciousness, but many scientists now agree that other species have minds which is to say experiences generated by their brain's interaction with its body and the environment. I do accept the basic premise that the mind, whatever it is, is generated by the brain, which leads us to the so-called unconscious. We now know that 95% or more of what the brain does is not accessible to conscious awareness. For that reason, I think that using the word subconscious is misleading. Prior to my recent journey, I was never interested in Freud's work, so I've been unconcerned with the fact that modern neuroscience has not found anything corresponding to his id, ego, and superego. 
But I do think he deserves credit for realizing that the unconscious is very important. It's also relevant that no evidence of Jung's collective unconscious has been detected. Instead, we have learned that most of our decision-making is done at an unconscious level, but there is a constant interaction between various levels so that a decision I make today with conscious deliberation might reemerge automatically in the future. Because of this constant communication up and down the central nervous system, I see the mind as consisting of everything that the brain does, whether it's conscious or unconscious. So from that perspective, any animal that has a brain has a mind. However, minds are not brains alone. The mind is embodied because it is created by the interaction between the brain, body, and environment. In 2012, mind featured prominently on the Brain Science Podcast. Philosopher Patricia Churchland talked about the evolution of social behavior and mammals. She emphasized how it was rooted in changes in the brain structure and chemistry, but she also warned us about the hazards of over-extrapolating from discoveries made with animals. It's also relevant to realize that behavior that resembles what we call morality can be seen in other species besides humans. In 2012, I also discussed a couple of other books that I think are particularly relevant to the question, what is mind? One was Who's in Charge, Free Will and the Science of the Brain by Michael Gozaniga, and the other was Self Comes to Mind by Antonio Damasio. Dr. Gazaniga explores mind as an emergent phenomena and even considers why many neuroscientists resist such an approach. But for me, his take on free will stands out because he argues that responsibility is dependent on social interaction and the rules of social engagement. It's something that happens between people, not in the brain. While the traditional view of free will doesn't fit modern scientific knowledge, Neither does determinism. Freedom is also something that occurs between people, not inside the brain. But then Chris Koch came on, and while he talked mostly about his work with the Allen Brain Institute, he revealed that he no longer sees emergence and the other tools of complex systems as sufficient. He has embraced panpsychism the idea that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe. I mention this because I think it's important to realize that when it comes to these bigger questions, such as questions about the mind, scientists often come to divergent conclusions. Evan Thompson's book, Mind and Life, is a challenging and rewarding book to read. For me, the main key idea that stands out is the continuity between life and mind. In Thompson's view, there's a continuous thread from life to mind to consciousness because the same principles of self-organization that make life possible lead to mind and then consciousness. And then in Self Comes to Mind, Antonio Damasio brings readers up to date with the evolution of his thinking. He talks about the evidence that 
contrary to the James Lang hypothesis, which he has long favored, emotions begin in the subcortical circuits of the brain. He acknowledges the research that has been done all these many years by Jacques Panksepp. Damasio describes the mind as a natural result of evolution, but it's also largely unconscious and internal. He explicitly says that mind does not equal consciousness. Damasio sees image-making as the essential feature of mind, and he defines consciousness as, quote, a mind endowed with subjectivity, end quote. But he's really interested in how the mind creates a self, because he says that until there's a self, the mind is unconscious. So for Damasio, Gonzaga, and Thompson, mind comes before consciousness, but both are rooted in the physical processes of the brain. We closed out 2012 with a return interview with Jacques Panksepp. And now since we had focused on the most basic evidence in his original interview, this time we talked mostly about the subcortical origins of fear and the evidence that this infamous emotion begins below the level of the amygdala, which is commonly seen to be its source. I also want to mention that in late 2012, I did another interview with Jacques about the implications of his work for our relationship with other species. This is episode 51 of Books and Ideas, which you can get for free by getting that show in your podcast app or Books and Ideas also has its own mobile app. From Stella in Australia. Normally I would not use my time to give feedback, but your program has helped me so deeply that I am highly motivated to respond to your call. You have my unending gratitude as I have been quietly listening since 2010. At that time I was in a terrible domestic situation and deeply intellectually frustrated. This situation continued for many years. I knew from listening to your podcast that I had to do something, and I was able to complete a graduate certificate in neuroscience learning in 2011. Unfortunately, I was unable to study further at that time, but my flame of interest was fed by your work. Your candor and wisdom have been clearly felt as I listened. I remember the times you thought you may not be able to keep going and when you needed breaks and related your feelings so deeply. However, I knew that you would keep on going as this is a very special journey you have chosen and I'm sure that I'm not the only person who has been so affected by your work. I'm happy to report that Stella says her circumstances have now improved and she is currently working on her PhD proposal that combines education, neuroscience, and psychology. To sum up where we are at this point, mind is a natural continuity of the processes that create life. And many writers see mind as a precursor to consciousness. In 2013, we explored a wide range of topics, including pain, embodied cognition, the limits of neuroscience, neuroanthropology, autism, the evolution of synapses, the limits of psychiatry, and network theory. There was actually more clinical content 
than most years since I looked at pain, autism, and psychiatry. Since I'm trying to focus today on the question, what is mind, I want to call your attention to Robert Burton's interview in episode 96. Here, Burton reminds us of the inherent limitations of minds trying to understand minds. Another returning guest in 2013 was Olaf Sporns. He gave us an update on the progress of the Human Connectome Project. One thing I really like about Dr. Sporns is that he's really a big picture sort of guy. He appreciates that neuroscience is generating massive amounts of data at levels ranging from the molecular all the way up to the whole brain, but that there is a need for creating new tools sharing this data, especially across levels of analysis. But what I really like most about him is his appreciation for the need for more comprehensive theories, theories that can be tested. Remember, correlation does not equal causation. Theories do not just drop out if you have enough data, because by definition, the data collected is always driven by whatever questions have been asked. For example, if you think that where is the only question worth asking, lots of other important variables will be neglected. Big data can be used to help generate new theories, but it is essential to the scientific method that these theories are then tested separately to whatever extent is possible. Anyone seriously considering a career in neuroscience should read Sporn's work and make mastering the tools of network theory a priority because this is a skill that you can take into any area of neuroscience. The time has passed when neuroscientists can afford to be math-phobic. It's okay if it's not your strength, but you need to understand the tools well enough to communicate with those who thrive in that domain. Brain Science is sponsored by Audible.com, the world's leading provider of downloadable audio content. If you aren't already a subscriber, please go to audible.com forward slash brain science. All the episodes of Brain Science released in 2014 are freely available including episode 114, which is a pretty detailed review of the entire year. So for today, I'm just going to talk about the ones that are most relevant to the question, what is mind? Luis Pessoa discussed the evidence that the amygdala does more than we have been traditionally taught. His work has also shown that parts of the thalamus act as much more than mere relay stations. But the big takeaway is that the emotional and cognitive signals become deeply intertwined long before they reach the cortex. At the level of the cortex, there's really no such thing as pure emotion or pure cognition. This might seem strange at first, but there are strong evolutionary reasons why this actually makes sense. Attention will always be a limited resource, And we need a way of deciding what to pay attention to. In keeping with the discovery that most of what the brain does is unconscious, these decisions are largely driven by circuits below the cortical level. How does that relate to the Dalai Lama's question, what is mind? Well, respected scientists like Michael Gazzaniga and Antonio Damasio have argued 
that mind came before consciousness. Animals had to make survival decisions long before consciousness emerged. You could even argue that even single-celled organisms make simple decisions. So it makes sense that much of our basic decision-making occurs below the level of our conscious awareness, which is good because it frees our conscious mind to focus on more interesting things than making sure our heart keeps beating or that we keep breathing. But that brings us back to the debate about the definition of mind. Many of the writers I considered in 2012 seem to see mind as a precursor to consciousness. And I appreciate that making the distinction emphasizes the evolutionary progression from life to mind to consciousness. But I still prefer to think of the mind as everything the brain does, including the generation of subjective experience or consciousness. One reason I prefer this approach is that it allows for the fact that content of the mind can shift its location. After hours of practice, a consciously practiced skill becomes automatic and largely unconscious. Think of walking. You may be aware that you're walking, or you may walk without being aware of it, but either way, you're not really aware of how you walk. Similarly, we might become more attuned to emotions that we have previously ignored so that they become a part of our conscious experience. But we have to acknowledge that much of the brain's unconscious content is inaccessible. Another episode that directly relates to this discussion was Michael Graziano's interview about his attention schema theory. He talked about the evidence that some areas of the brain appear to be involved in both awareness and attributing awareness to others. He proposes that the brain uses the circuits that determine others are conscious to decide that we are conscious. We also consider the fact that we are quite liberal about attributing consciousness to non-living things, and also we consider the implications his theory might have for the generation of artificial consciousness as opposed to artificial intelligence. The social aspect of consciousness is one of the unique features of the human mind. Patricia Churchland said that about 5% of mammals are social, so it's not really that common of a survival strategy. Social interaction is so important to human health that one could argue that the human mind can't exist without it. The essential fact that we are hardwired to be social is a topic that I hope to explore further in the coming months and years. And of course, one of the last episodes of 2014 was episode 113, which had highlights from the Dalai Lama's first ever visit to Alabama which included a special symposium about brain plasticity featuring Norman Doidge, Michael Mersnick, and Edward Taub. If you're interested in seeing the video of that event, it is available on YouTube. 2014 was kind of a strange year for the show. In January, we launched the premium subscription for $5 a month. This got an enthusiastic response, especially from long-time listeners who wanted a convenient way to support my work. Prior to that, everything was totally free, and I was dependent on listener donations, which didn't generate much income. Premium subscribers get all episode transcripts and unlimited access to older episodes. 
When we launched the premium subscription, we kept the most recent 25 episodes plus annual review episodes free. But in 2015, I expanded this to include everything posted from January 2013 forward. What made 2014 unusual was that right after I launched the premium subscription, I decided to make a major career change by applying for a fellowship in palliative medicine. I applied for a position that was scheduled to start in July of 2015, but in April, I was offered a spot that actually started in July of 2014. One side effect of that was that I never really promoted the premium subscription, but since I had gotten a reasonably good initial response, it did motivate me to keep the show going during my fellowship. Otherwise, I think it's really likely that I would have stopped the show when I started the fellowship in the summer of 2014. Jesse is a listener who has been listening for about four years and says that he found the show through Spotify, which kind of surprised me. When he first started listening, he was a Ph.D. student in applied physics, but now he's working on applying physics to brain science in the Whites group at Harvard. He's also reported to me that he's recently started an email discussion group with other people that enjoy brain science. He says he can't get his wife to listen through an episode because she's a surgery resident and usually falls asleep. I'm going to not take that personally. Here's an email from Lucia who is at UCLA. I recently discovered the Brain Science Podcast while on a solo road trip and haven't been able to stop listening. I wanted to reach out and thank you for the show because it has had a huge personal significance for me in terms of choosing a career path. I'm currently an undergraduate at UCLA studying cognitive science. I'm relatively new to the sciences, and though the thought of working in a field like cognitive or evolutionary neuroscience is thrilling, I've always felt rather intimidated by the hard sciences. It's easy to feel like an imposter entering the realm of neuroscience without a technical background in chemistry or molecular biology. After listening to your podcast, particularly those in which researchers offer advice for young students, I've come to the realization that science is much more accessible than I thought. Your interviews make difficult topics like brain plasticity, synapse evolution, and subcortical placebo effects seem palatable, even to an undergraduate listener. I am overwhelmingly fascinated by the question of how does our brain make us human? And listening to the Brain Science Podcast has influenced me to begin to search for a laboratory to work in at school so I can get my hands on these tools as soon as possible. Again, I wanted to give my sincere thanks for organizing and producing such an exciting and thrilling show. I'll keep listening as long as you keep making them. The last regular episode of 2014 featured the Dalai Lama, so it seems appropriate that we started 2015 with Evan Thompson, who is a co-author of one of the founding texts about embodied cognition. But this time we talked about how Eastern philosophy and Western neuroscience enrich and inform one another. This is very relevant to the question, what is mind, since the question has been a source of contemplation and controversy in Eastern thought for over a thousand years. Thompson also reminded us, like Robert Burton did, that we can't step outside of consciousness to observe it. 
Thompson was followed by the return of both Norman Doidge and Edward Taub to update us on clinical aspects of brain plasticity. It was a great honor to speak with Michael Gazzaniga, who is widely considered the father of cognitive neuroscience. Dr. Gazzaniga has written many books, and one of his early books, The Mind's Past, is one that I read way back in 2003. It stimulated my interest in neuroscience and so indirectly led to this podcast. Then, later in the summer, Bud Craig did a great job of making functional neuroanatomy accessible. This episode is a must-listen for anyone wanting to know more about the role of the insula and interoception. I want to take a moment to talk about how I vary the technical level of this show. I try to alternate between high-tech episodes and those that are more accessible to general audiences, although the general level of this show has become more technical over time. Every listener has their own particular comfort level, but I encourage you to listen to every episode, even ones that you think will either be too hard or too easy. I work really hard to make sure every episode has take-home value to every listener. When you're done with an episode, ask yourself, what was the key idea and how does it apply to me? You would be surprised how many non-scientists enjoy listening to episodes more than once, but only do that if you really enjoy it. Remember, if you are a student, a more efficient approach might be to read the transcripts. I've skewed this review to the more technical episodes So I haven't really mentioned episodes like the one about sleep or the one about disgust. If you're trying to decide whether to listen to only a few back episodes or listen to them all, I recommend not skipping episodes because I've gotten countless emails that start along these lines. I thought such and such would not be interesting, but I listened anyway and was surprised how much I enjoyed it. The listeners to the Brain Science Podcast are very diverse, ranging from students to professors. So here is an email I got from a professor at the University of New Mexico. I wanted to add how much I appreciate what you're doing. I listen to your podcast while walking my dogs. I may even love them as much as you do, driving the car and working at home. You have a wonderful skill of drawing out interviewees and honing in on complicated issues in a way that makes them accessible. Your persona also shines through. I mention your podcast in all my classes and include links in my syllabi. Keep up the great work. I want to thank everyone. Over the years, I've gotten so many emails from teachers at various levels, from high school up through the medical school in Tehran, in Iran. And I'm really proud that I've provided information that teachers find useful to their students. Most of these materials they have gotten completely for free. Looking back on 2014 and 2015, I'm very proud of the amount of high quality content that I created, both from July 2014 through June 2015, when I was doing a full-time fellowship in palliative medicine. And then at the end of 2015, when I was still reeling from my husband's unexpected death, which occurred only a few weeks after I finished the fellowship. 2016 started out 
with two strong episodes, but then the stress of trying to keep the show going amidst all the extreme changes in my life finally got to me. So I announced a six-month hiatus, and I tried to make it clear that I was not sure what would happen after that. Unfortunately, as time passed, I didn't feel any more certain. I got emails begging me to continue, along with supportive emails suggesting that even an occasional episode would be appreciated. I really appreciate all of those of you who kept your premium subscription during this period. It's one reason why I decided to make more episodes free. For a while, I thought that when the six months were up, I would just do some farewell episodes. But then, because of your feedback, I decided to resume the show on a more limited basis. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I do want to talk for a few minutes about the key ideas from the three new interviews that were posted in 2016, since I haven't really posted a year-end episode for 2016. Andy Clark may be best known for his theory of the extended mind, which I mentioned briefly earlier, but in his latest book, Surfing Uncertainty, he is focusing on our brains as prediction machines. This is not necessarily a new idea. It was also a key feature of Jeff Hawkins' bestseller on intelligence, which was featured back in episode two. But I think Clark's book presents an excellent overview of the field, along with his own unique take on how prediction and the principles of embodied cognition might work together. The conversation did get a little technical, but many listeners seem to particularly enjoy this episode. The book itself is definitely aimed at students and others working in the field. Next came the return of Fabrizio Benedetti, a leading researcher on the neurobiology of placebos. Benedetti gave us an update on his work. Back when we first talked in 2010, he emphasized that there are placebo effects, not a single placebo effect. Two examples highlight this principle. One example involved a typical experiment where an animal is pretreated for several days with an analgesic and then given a placebo. It turns out that the neurobiology depends on the drug that was used in the pretreatment phase. So if the animal received opioids in the pretreatment phase, the placebo will elicit the endogenous opioid pathway. However, if they got a, a non-opioid or anti-inflammatory type medicine, a different pathway is activated. To me, this is both amazing and a powerful demonstration that there is no single placebo effect. More recently, Dr. Benedetti has been working with, at high altitudes and studying the effect of placebos on high-altitude headaches. In this arena, they have pre-treated people with either aspirin or oxygen. And again, they have found that depending on which one they use, a different pathway is activated when the person gets a placebo, showing that this principle applies to people, not just animals. I strongly encourage you to listen to both of Dr. Benedetti's interviews, especially if you are interested in patient care in any way. Finally, in episode 128, we talked with John Mallett about a startling hypothesis that consciousness arose with the very first vertebrates, 
during the Cambrian explosion about 500 million years ago. I'm actually hoping I'll get his co-author, Todd Feinberg, on the show sometime in 2017 so that we can talk about how an evolutionary approach might help solve the so-called hard problem of consciousness. The subject of mind did not explicitly arise during 2016, but since there were only three new episodes, I'm not sure that that is significant. So let's return to my personal take on the Dalai Lama's question, what is mind? The word mind is like the word consciousness, which is to say that every scientist or philosopher seems to have their own definition. Unfortunately, they are not always explicit about this. Some see mind as something separate from consciousness, as a prerequisite for consciousness. Recall that Antonio Damasio said that consciousness was mind plus a sense of self. In this view, many animals have minds, but few have consciousness. In contrast, other researchers seem to use the terms mind and consciousness interchangeably. Mallet and Feinberg's primary sensory consciousness seems to be similar to Damasio's mind. So when they push primary consciousness back to the first vertebrates, this is not that different from Damasio's view that mind is very old. As I said before, I prefer to think of mind and consciousness in a slightly different way, in a way closer to the way that the words are used in everyday speech. So my definition of mind is everything the brain does, whether it's conscious or not. This view embraces the fact that most of our mind's activity is not accessible to conscious awareness or control. It also allows for the likelihood that non-human minds have differing levels of consciousness, ranging from none to levels surprisingly similar to our own. One might try to exclude some of the unconscious activities of the brain from mind, Damasio seems to do this when he says that mind is the image-making ability. But my objection to this viewpoint is that reality is more of a continuum without sharp boundaries. The border between mind and consciousness can be fuzzy, and the same problem arises when you try to exclude some brain activities from the mind. Also, if you try to define such a border What do you do with content that changes from conscious to unconscious and vice versa? Thus, I come back to my working definition of mind as all the stuff our brain does, whether it's permanently inaccessible to conscious awareness or something that we are currently pondering, such as when we're making up our mind. I belabor this point in preparation for the final piece of today's conversation, a final question. What have we learned about how our mind works. This could be rephrased as, what have we learned about how our brains work? But I prefer to think of it in terms of the mind, not only to remind us that the mind is created by the brain's interaction with the body and the environment, but also to focus on higher-level questions. There are lots of interesting discoveries being made at the level of the brain such as Seth Grant's work with synapses and the ongoing work in neuroplasticity. But the mind is actually one level up, since it includes the brain's interaction with the body and its environment. For example, people are fascinated by the question of how our minds are different from those of other animals, 
And not because our brains are different physically, but because we are interested in questions such as, is it true that only humans are capable of language? My favorite question is, how did the human mind evolve? A question that must look beyond brain evolution to the impact of our environment and, most importantly, to the impact of culture. As Michael Gazzaniga has observed, things like responsibility and freedom occur between people, not inside brains. It's no coincidence that podcasts that emphasize social engagement of their audience are much more successful than shows like the Brain Science Podcast. It's because we are wired to be social, and we are more easily drawn to things that fill that need. That's why many people continue to attend church, even if they no longer believe the particular dogma that their church promotes. As I mentioned before, I do hope that exploring the social aspects of mind will be something I'll be able to feature in this upcoming year. The social part is also the reason why your feedback is so important to me, as I'm a human being and need this social feedback. The feedback is really what has kept the show going for 10 years. Here's what Louise, another long-term listener, said. I was both delighted to see Dr. Campbell back giving podcasts and also delighted to hear Curtis Kelly in latest podcast. I teach with Curtis in Japan, and when I first discovered Dr. Campbell's podcast on iTunes, while looking for science podcasts, I excitedly told Curtis about it. But, not surprisingly, he already knew about it. I'm going to close today's episode with another piece that Curtis sent me after I posted episode 130, which you can tell from Louise's email, it also came after episode 130. Stay tuned after the close of this episode for some more information from Curtis about how they use the principles of brain science to be healthier. So what can you expect in 2017? The next episode of Brain Science is probably going to come out sometime in March. I hope to produce a show every two to three months. This is going to be driven by topics that interest me rather than having to follow a particular schedule. Because the show will be coming out irregularly, I highly recommend that if you aren't already subscribed to our free newsletter, you might want to subscribe since this will help you be sure that you don't ever miss a new episode. Also, don't forget that if you are a premium subscriber, the free mobile app is a great way to access the premium content so that you don't have to go to the website. I've gotten some complaints about the clunkiness of where the premium content is hosted, and I can't really fix that other than to tell you that using the mobile app will improve that. I usually try to fit in things that I would like people to do during the episodes and at the end, but sometimes this gets overwhelming, especially for new listeners. So I think the number one thing that I would ask you to do is share brain science with other people. Secondly, visit brainsciencepodcast.com because there you will find all the old episodes who's been on the show, what the topics have been. There is a fairly decent search engine there. And you can also send me feedback via the website, via the mobile app, or at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. 
I want to thank you for supporting the show in whatever way that you can, whether that be sharing it with others or supporting the show financially. And I look forward to talking with you again very soon. You asked your audience to talk about uh, what podcasts influence them. And for me, it was definitely John Rady's first podcast on movement and the brain. As a teacher, learning about sleep and how sleep leads to learning was really a surprise. But another one was how movement and cognitive processing abilities are so closely connected. If you don't move, your blood doesn't flow and your brain builds up neurotoxins. Well, this explained why after a two-hour meeting I felt so brain-dead and unable to talk because I was just listening instead of moving. It also explained why after, at conferences, after one or two presentations, I felt so exhausted too. So, it occurred to me, if I moved a little bit between presentations, like climbed a few flights of stairs, get my blood flow up, that'd make a huge difference. And I talked about this with some other colleagues that were interested in brain science, and we decided to climb stairs between presentations. There are only three or four of us that did this, but we noted at how the end of the day we felt so much fresher than we did otherwise. So, we decided to in incorporate some kind of movement for all the participants in the conferences that we organize. Now, we put together two or three conferences a year on something called NeuroELT here in Asia, where neuroscience meets language teaching. And we always have energy breaks between the presentations. Now, energy break might just be something simple like everybody standing up and coming down to the front to get the handouts or a snack or something or some kind of game that involves active movement or climbing stairs. But we tell the audience why movement is important, have them move, and people have commented that by the end of the day they feel so much fresher by doing this. We also tell our participants that in their own classes, since most of them are teachers, to make sure that they include movement for their students, maybe having them stand up to do pair work or to come to the front to get or hand in their quizzes instead of passing them out. So we're encouraging movement in many ways. In fact, in the Brain Special Interest Group of the Japan Association of Language Teachers, I'm the coordinator of that group, we have a special officer position called Body Police. And that person makes sure that everybody knows that movement is important and that movement is incorporated for all of our participants in all of our conferences. So, thank you John Rady and Ginger Campbell for this great influence on the way we teach English in Asia. Brain Science is copyright 2017, Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this episode to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The theme music for Brain Science was composed and performed by Tony Catraccia. You can learn more about his work at syncopationnow.com.